Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast does contain some description of events which some listeners may find distressing. Actung actor, welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. This is the second part of my conversation with Holocaust survivor Selma van der Peer. This episode begins with her arriving at Ravensbrück and tells the story of her treatment in the camps and the incredible story of her liberation. And you eventually end up in Ravensbrück, don't you? I was, ta- I was taken to the Dutch concentration camp first, and then uh, when the invasion came, the, the English and American invasion in June, because don't forget, this was already um, late in the autumn, and um, in August, I was taken there and uh, was put in an camp, a very small camp, where um, we were put to make gas masks, a small gas mask factory. And um, while I was there, I was sleeping in just one one barrack. Not, we, we didn't have tears, we were just one barrack. And there was one barrack for um, toilets with no division, just five toilets with her, and one barrack for the kitchen. So it was very, it was very, very small and intimate. And one, we worked there from 12, 12 hours, from six to six, six in the morning till six in the evening, or six in the evening till six in the morning for night shift. And while I was there, I had night shift one day, and I was queuing up with other people for the toilets. We had, as I say, no division, no curtains, nothing in between, but they were real toilets. And um, the woman, who was in front of me, came from the toilet and I saw her pulling the water closet, the chain and the water closet came down and fell on my hands and half my thumb broke off, almost at least the hang off. And you can still see the the bite. And it took years and years and years for it to heal. And I still have no power, much power in it. I can just do about this. That was my uh, experience. Another another prisoner who had been a nurse, she found a stick and uh, a piece of cloth which she tore up and she bound it all together. And that's why it healed, because there were no doctors, and not there at least. And uh, so I worked there and on the running band, what's it called? The, and uh, I was sitting at a conveyor belt and the girl opposite me said, uh, don't screw the screws too fast because we want to... Uh, we want them to get loose when they get to um, to Germany to be used. They were gas masks. So that's what I did. We all did. We tried to do these things. And then one night, we all sabotaged in that way. It's the only thing we could do. One day, um, night, I was uh, queuing for night shift. And uh, we were going in the, in the factory when the girl in front of me said, uh, we're going to try and escape tonight. Are you coming with us? 
So I thought of it. I said, no, I don't think so. I thought I was safer inside than outside in case they opened my papers again. So, but she said, can you close the window? Because we're going through the toilet window. And that's what they did, three of them. They went through the toilet window and um, and I, clo I was asked to close the window. Luckily, I didn't go with them because um, when they were crossing out, they were in the blue overalls, which we were all in. And um, when they were walking in the, in the meadow outside, there was a German looking for a farmer to help them. There was a German soldier lying there with a Dutch girl, and he recognized them and took them back to Goodness. the camp. So it was very good that I didn't. Salma, one thing I wanted to ask you was was about what happened to Bob Yesser. Bob, um, Peter, and she was then, and Jan were, of course, arrested. And when we were taken to Ravensbrück, Jan was taken to um, an, a men's camp. And um, But Bob, because what had happened is they had told Bob they had found his diary and Bob, very precise man, had made notes in the diary. And one of them was a meeting in the south of Holland. And he, they, the Germans said if he didn't tell them where it was and what day, then they would shoot John and me. And I didn't know that for years until I saw it in the papers in the archives. And um, so he had to, he also was, there was also a woman with two little children and the Germans kept the children, one of the children's arms behind the back and said, if he didn't tell them place, then they would break the child's arm. So the mother, mother cried and cried and went on to him and said, please, please tell them. And so he told. It's so unspeakably cruel, isn't it? Yeah. And so, at the end of the war, because the, the, the Allies um, invaded France first, and then they came in the 4th of September on the border of Holland and Belgium, and then um, Holland was liberated quite a while afterwards, the next year. Um, the north of Holland was first not the first the six months of the winter terrible winter for the Dutch um, 44 45 and um, but when they were liberated two boys came uh, young boys and wanted to shoot Bob because they said he was he had betrayed them and they they shot by accident Dintje his wife and she was in a wheelchair all her life. A terrible story. It's terrible, isn't it? But you obviously survived Ravensbrook. I stayed, I stayed friends with Bob because I knew how difficult it had been. You can't judge, you see, because there was nothing he could do. Yeah, I wanted to survive. I didn't want to give the Germans the satisfaction of killing me, of having me dead. <laughs> I wanted to survive. I mm. said to myself, do everything. But I've had times that I almost died, though. There was one evening when I was at Siemens, I worked for Siemens then, and um, who had a factory near the camp and had people working for them. And um, I was 
in a terrible state, almost died, when my boss said, the chef of the hall said, go and lie down in the office. And there was a little office at the end of the hall. The hall was with 300 people, something like that, 300 women, and, and to lie down. And just that evening, that night, was the night, that night, the haupt of Serene, the head of Serene came. She'd never been before and she never came afterwards. Just that evening. And I was lying down. So when they started counting, there was one missing all the time. They counted and counted and counted. And, never, and in the end, the boss master told them that I was lying there. So, so then, and I thought I'd be terribly punished because you know, I thought that's the end of me. But no, I think he must have said that he told me to go and lie down there. But she was, I don't know if you saw the story a few weeks ago, well, a month or two ago, um, Johanna Sandri, she was in the, in the newspapers because she had been condemned to death in um, Nuremberg, but um, the Polish, Polish, Polish prisoners in Ravensbrück written to the judges and said that she had helped them. But um, she was a horrible woman. But I was very lucky that night that, you know, she didn't do anything. Just going to tell you how one of the German soldiers hit me with his belt when I couldn't get up from the toilet. And um, it was quite in the beginning. I had terrible trouble with my tummy. Still is very sensitive. And um, there was roll call all the time. And there was roll call then in the morning. And I couldn't get up from the loo. And so he took his belt off, his leather belt with iron on it, and started hitting me until I was unconscious. And then two of the other women had to hold me up for the counting, and they took me to the hospital. And I was for several days in the hospital. They put me in the bottom, in, in the, at the head end of the bed, and there were two German women lying at the foot end. I was still unconscious. The next morning, they threw me out of the bed, and therefore I woke up. And they said, dirty Dutch woman hasn't washed. So I crawled on my knees to the corridor where there was a and started washing me myself. And the officerin who was standing there and heard the Polish woman talking to me said, um, I thought that Dutch woman would be dead this morning, so I must have been in a terrible state. And she took me back to the bed. So there we are. Wow. I mean, you, you had some incredible... Yeah, there are more stories, but they're so... I mean, you know, I could go on talking. <laughs> well, don't let me stop you. I mean, it's... it's. Well, I was there in the hospital. The boss had... Well, I had found... Well, in the beginning when we arrived, Will and I started... We had to do all of us, all the Dutch women had to do very heavy work, except the ones that were sent to Siemens. Those were the ones who, in Eindhoven, had worked for Philips. But we hid under a matras so that we didn't need to do very heavy work, Bill and I, Bill Westlale and I. And, um, but I thought it was very dangerous, really, even although we were Dutch and thought we could do everything. Um, next morning, one of the women who came back from Siemens, when we told what we did, she said to me, why don't you join the Siemens group? And I said, well, I've never worked for 
Philips, I don't know how to do these, how to work these machines. Oh, it doesn't matter. She said, somebody will tell you. I said, yes, but also going out of the camp. I mean, you know, they don't have my number and everything. Oh, that's not necessary. All they do is you, you line up in fives and all they do is counting the rows of fives. So in the end, she talked me into it. And the next morning at half past five, I joined the group. And she was quite right. All they did was counting the rows of five. So I arrived at Siemens. It was half an hour walk in those days before they made the Siemens camp. And um, I was put in the shelves of the, at, near the wall with little machines on it. Little, I think, we think um, aeroplanes machines. Little. So I was put to work to, to soldier very fine wires. Well, I couldn't do that. I was very nervous, very nervous. I couldn't. So every time the phone went, I jumped up and answered it because I knew how to do that. And uh, while I was in the hospital later on, just talking about, a girl came and she said, Siemens has made a new barrack, a new hall. And uh, her safe her is the chef there and he wants you to come and become his secretary. So when I went and left the hospital as soon as I could, so I had quite a good, he was sitting on that side of the, his table and I was sitting on the other side. So I had quite, uh, quite a good, comparatively easy time. And did that, and that, did that see you through to liberation? Yeah, I did. Yes, yes, yes. I had times that I was almost dying and my Czech friend came with and slice of bread with onion, cut onions on it, which put me back again on my feet. I had times that I was almost dying, but um, I got through it, yeah, in the end. Extraordinary story. It really is. There are several stories within it, of course, yes. I, For instance, uh, once uh, it was getting winter and I was getting very cold, and my Czech friend, who always was very well-dressed, she had a nice coat on and nice shoes and so and the Czechs were very influential because they'd been there from the beginning, you know, and they helped each other very much, like the Russians did, actually. And, uh, but she was sitting next to me at the table and in Siemens, and she didn't need to do night shift. I don't know why not, but she never did. But when I was not feeling well, she came with this slice of bread with onions it's funny, but it's like a piece of cake now, you know. And, um, yes, it was just a slice of their awful bread and cut onions on it, little pieces of onions. And that was like a piece of cake. Saved my life. But one day she said to me, now you go to the Kleidungskammer, which was the, the hallway, the, the the barrack where all the clothes were kept, all our bags from the camp and all the people, all the Jewish people who had been sent to Auschwitz, all their clothes was there as well, in bags. And she said, tell the woman there that I sent you, she's so and so, I can't remember the name now, it's a Czech woman, friend of mine, and um, she knows that you're coming. So I hardly dared go, but I did in the end because I thought I need some warm clothes. We only had those very thin, grey, striped prison dresses. And I went, and yes, she, she did know. I said, I come from Wally. And she said, yes, I know. And she gave me a lovely 
quilted black coat and a, and a, and a cap with it and uh, some shoes, proper shoes. And I really wore those the whole time till the end of the imprisonment. And it saved me, really. I would have had pneumonia otherwise. So you, you were helped in those things. You know, you had your friends. And they had their influence, some of them, especially the ones who were there in the beginning. I mean, from the very beginning, 1942 or something. And Selma, tell me about liberation. I mean, what, what, what was... What in 1945, first of all, in the beginning of 1945, we were asked to stand outside for roll call at normal. And uh, women over 50, their, their names and their numbers were called out and they were called out. And they were, and their daughters, they, some of them had daughters there, and their daughters asked what was happening. And we were told that they were they're going to another camp and they're getting good food and don't need to work anymore. And we believed it at that moment, of course, but we were told later on, these daughters were told later on that they were killed and went through the pipe. Yeah. And so in 1945, we were called outside. And we thought the same thing was happening to us because we knew that every day people, women were killed still. They were gassed and killed because by that time Auschwitz didn't exist anymore and it, it had been liberated by the Russians in the beginning of 45. And all the guards came to Ravensbrück and also the gas chamber and, and the ovens. And um, so we knew that that was happening. In fact, the day we were liberated, on the 23rd of April 1945, they still, the Germans, still killed 13 women. We were called outside and we thought we were going to be killed as well, you see. And then um, we had to walk past that youth camp, Uckermark, where the old people were sent to before they were gassed. And we thought, oh, that's where we go. But luckily we passed it and we went to the main camp. But then we thought we'd go in the main camp and go to the gas chambers there. And we thought this all the time. But we stayed in, an, in a barrack for nine days, in a hall, for nine days. And every day when we had to go outside for roll call, we thought that's the end, you know. And that was a terrible feeling. It's awful. I mean, how do you prepare yourself for that? You can't. There's nothing you can do. Even the day itself, on the 23rd of April, we were told to walk and go outside the gate. And we thought again, there we go, you see. After all that time having done it, now we, we I remember did saying or I saying something like that. After all this awful time that we will be killed now, after all. But um, it wasn't. Because what happened was, we stood there and in the morning, we had to stand there outside the gate, the main gate. And nobody tells you anything, you see, in those camps. No, nothing, to, never. And don't forget, also, we had been told so often that we would be liberated, and it never happened, that we didn't believe it. And we stood there and stood there and stood there, and nothing happened. And, uh, and of course, the German guard stands on your side, so there's nothing you can do. And um, then suddenly a little car, a little sports car arrived, and we saw a young man jumping out of it, and he introduced himself as a... Swedish chap 
um, and a friend of Count Volker Bernadotte, who was head of the Swedish Red Cross and International Red Cross. And um, he told us that we would be freed by buses. Buses would come and free us and take us to Sweden. But no buses came. So we didn't believe that either. Because no buses came, no buses came. And he said when it became dark in the evening, it was summer after all, spring, um, you better go back to your beds because you want to sleep. And we said, oh, never do we go back into the camp again. We had told him all the stories, but you could see in the man's face that he didn't believe it, you know. It was, it was unbelievable, of course. The whole story was unbelievable. Still is. So we said, no, 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 we used, but you can't stand the whole, or sit on the floor. And we said, well, I mean, I didn't, but the other said, I, I stand the whole night if I work on my machine, because they had standing in big machines as well, they worked at, you see. And um, as I said, he didn't believe it, but we didn't go back, except the very ill ones, they went back to the camp's hospital. And then the next morning, three trucks arrived, military trucks. No buses yet, military trucks. And we were told the young ones to jump in that and you'd be taken to um, Denmark, via Denmark to Sweden. So we jumped in. Well, I wanted to sit next to the driver because the, those trucks had um, cloth coverage, you know, instead of instead of fence. Yeah. So I wanted to sit next to the driver, but somebody else wanted to sit there, and we fought for the seat, the woman and I. In the end, the driver said, um, we're going to stop in an hour's time, and you can sit here then to me. So I let her sit there, and I went into the van before her. And we stopped after an hour, half an hour, an hour, I can't remember. And uh, in the woods, we sat in the woods drinking, because they had brought uh, orange juice and tea and um, sandwiches and chocolate, sat there having it, and suddenly some shooting started. And the driver said, quick, 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 back into the van, you can't stay here, we don't want the shooting. And uh, so we ran back, and I wanted to sit next to him. <laughs> But she, she was quicker, and she went, I said, but we arranged it, but she didn't want to. So my friend did, did said, come, come, with us, come with me, Marga, let her go. So I had to go in the back of the previous, the one, the, the van in front. This woman was, because they, they were the allies shooting, they thought it was German prisoners and um, military chap fleeing, because that's what they did. They used the um, Red Cross vans and buses to flee themselves. But uh, it wasn't, of course, it was us. And 13 were killed, including the woman who didn't want me to have a seat. So if I would have been on that seat, I would have been killed too. We're having to take a short break now, but we'll be back after this. Welcome back to our conversation with Selma van der Peer. So then we went off to Denmark and got very heavy food, uh, very, very 
greasy food, beautiful food, but our stomachs couldn't carry it. So we were all very, very ill. The Danish, very nice Danish women were told not to mix as heavy food anymore for the rest, for the others. And then we went off over to Sweden, to Malmö by ferry. And um, when we arrived in Malmö, we, we had a lot of uh, high people giving talks. And all we wanted was to lie down and sleep. And uh, very, sure. very nice. When did you first feel, when did you start to feel free and, and, and start to relax a bit? Was it when you got to Denmark or was it when you got to Sweden? No, I started to feel that we were, that we were really freed when I, when the, the Swede standing outside the camp was offering me a cigarette and my outsiery, my right. guard, girl guard, was looking out of the window and said, Nicht rauchen, Marga. Don't smoke, Marga. It was, and then he said, the Swede said, you smoke, she has nothing to tell you anymore. It was that moment that I felt we were, it was true, we were free. You thought I've made it? Yeah. We arrived in Malmö in the big um, museum where they had put mattresses for us to lie on in one of the big halls. The big the huge statues were all covered up and, uh, and the, the floor was full of mattresses. But I couldn't lie down. I, I felt too restless. Um, the others went to sleep and talk together, but I couldn't. And um, then at a certain moment, there was the, um, we were given a shower and a bath and scrubbed clean because we were full of lice. And it was a wonderful feeling to be scrubbed like that. And then we were taken to another room where there were racks of clothes. We could choose two dresses and a coat and a hat and shoes given to suitcases. And so this was very nice. I realized then that we were free, definitely. And um, then there was a certain moment when there came a Dutch attaché and he went to sit behind the table and we had to queue up and give our names. So I went to the back of the queue and after a long thought, gave my name as Margarete van der Kuyt. And then I went also to the room where all the mattresses were and asked the doctor, could I help? And he said, yes, if you could help with some of the translations if necessary. But then I thought, while doing that, I thought I really ought to go back to the Dutchman and tell him whom I am. So luckily he was still there and I went back and I said, where does the list, does the list with the names go to Holland? And he said, no, it doesn't. And he said, it goes to England. I said, but he said, Holland is still occupied. I said, but England is still at war with Germany. So, yes, he said, but it goes into the diplomatic post and that can go without a German looking at it. So we then moved to, so I went back to um, to the Dutch table, to the men, the Dutch attaché, and I, said, I asked these questions and he answered them. And he said, why? Why are you so interested? I said, well, very hesitatingly. I didn't dare say it, actually. I didn't dare give my real name, but I said in the end, well, my name is really not Margarete van der Kuyt, but Selma Velleman. My name is Selma. So he looked up, didn't say a word, took his pen out of his pocket, scratched out Margarete van der Kuyt and put in Selma Velleman. Well, luckily for me, he did, because 
a few weeks after that, we were in Sweden, in Skatos, which was a little camp. We were in turn still because Holland was still occupied by Germany. And we had dinners in the evening. They were marvelous, Swedish. They were so good. We had lovely food and lovely clothes and everything. And saunas, which none of us had ever seen or experienced. And um, we had two dinners in the evening, one at six and one at seven. Beautiful food. And um, I had booked seven o'clock that evening. And there was a big hall where we had our dinners. And there was a podium there because before we were there, it had been used for soldiers. And there was a podium there for when they had the theatres. And there was a man standing on that podium and he said, is there a Selma Velleman here? And nobody had answered the first time at six o'clock when he asked that. But that this time I stood up, I said, yes, that's me. So everybody looked terribly surprised. He said, I've got a telegram for you. So I opened the telegram and it was from my brother David, who was head of the administration in London. That's Dutch administration in London. And he wrote and yes. said, so pleased. he had seen my list on the, my name on the list. And, um, well, not the first oh, one. must have been a wonderful feeling for him. Must have been, yes, as well. So pleased you are alive. What about mum, dad and Clara? Question mark. And when did you find out what happened to them? Um, my mother and sister, I did quite quick in Holland because there were lists of people who were killed. But my father, they didn't find out. They, I got Red Cross information. I was already in England in the beginning of 1946. Took six months. I don't know why, but it did. He'd actually been killed at Auschwitz, hadn't he, almost the day after he arrived? Taken on the transport from uh, uh, Westerbork to Auschwitz on the 6th of December, and he was killed on the 7th. They told me that then. They, oh, they, it was written so in the letter. And my mother and sister also were taken to... Uh, Sobibor, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, and they were killed straight away to the next day. In a way, very good, therefore, better than suffering a lot. Yes, I suppose. You know, you, and you've, and since then you've lived this a very long life, and I hope a happy one as well. I was very unhappy in the beginning in England because I didn't have a family anymore, and that, and I, I had been working so hard during the war all the time, being very occupied, and suddenly I had nothing to do or almost nothing, and no family. I had my brothers there, but they had their own lives. One of them was already married and was sailing, and the other one was engaged and was always with her, so going to Birmingham. So I really was very lonely. I felt very alone, too. I was working for the Dutch government for the um, medical services as a secretary, which was very nice. They made it for me, I think, because I was sitting in a room. I was secretary for the doctor of the medical services. I was sitting in a room with a major and a lieutenant. And all I had to do was learn what was in the files. And But I was bored. And when I met another girl, 
Dutch girl who was working for the BBC, for the Dutch section of the BBC, and she was going to leave. And in those days, she couldn't leave unless she found somebody to take her job. And um, she said to me, why don't you take my job? And that's what I did. And that's how I got to the BBC, Dutch section, in 1945. And... Um, then in my husband, that was the Dutch section, my husband was, well, Hugo was working in the Belgian section, and the, the Belgian Flemish speak Dutch as well, and we do too, so we all had tea and meals together and so. Um, and the two offices were only a very narrow corridors in between, so we knew each other already for a long time. And um, one day, I was... Um, having a meal in the canteen, when Hugo came, I knew him already, of course, from the Belgian journalists, and said to me, are you free this afternoon? Um, because I've got two tickets for a film. And um, so I said, yes. And th th it was quite normal in those days. I mean, the, the cultural journalists got two tickets, well, the sports journalists got two tickets as well. Not now anymore, but in those days they did. And they asked us to come along. And so I said, yes. And then an English journalist came and said, um, I've got two tickets, would you like to come along? So I said, why don't you join us? And the three of us went to the film. And the film was called Marry Me. And uh, Hugo afterwards said, would you like to come and have a meal? So I said, that's lovely. So we went and there weren't many restaurants open. But there was a lovely um, Chinese one, just off Piccadilly. And so we went there. And um, so we had a glass of wine. Hugo always had wine. <laughs> and um, so we toasted. We said, oh, lovely. Nice that you could make it. And I said, yeah, well, especially it's very nice for me because it's my birthday. And it was my birthday. It was the 7th <laughs> of June, 1994. We started telling each other a bit of how we got to England and so. And from that moment on, he never left me alone. So we went, we became <laughs> a couple. And um, it was lovely because the canteen was all right, but it wasn't like, there was a, a Bush House. We were in Bush House. And Bush House had a marvelous oh, restaurant. Yes. And uh, we had tea there every day. Imagine me having tea there. I mean, you know, I was very fond of sweetness and cake. And it uh, was lovely. Oh, well, he uh, he took me home to Earl's Court, where I had a room. And even he turned out to have a room as well in Earl's Court, in a uh, pub hotel. And uh, from that moment on, he just collected me every day and took me home again every day. Then I moved to, from my room, or from, by that time I was living with my brother and sister-in-law, and I moved from them to a hostel in Marble Arch, where I had a friend, Rini. It was a room with eight girls, and um, we were very nice together. We had a lovely time, and I did too. I learned English, by that, because in, in the Dutch section, of course, I spoke a lot of Dutch, and my English wasn't very good except what I'd learned at school. And uh, Hugo used to come and collect me and came, and he was loved by the girls because he used to come. We, used, they, we had a very big room. You weren't allowed to have men in your 
own room, and they had to leave at 10 o'clock anyhow, the building. And um, Hugo used to bring drinks and cakes and biscuits and so. And uh, they all, and we used to go swimming together, all the girls and, and he. <laughs> and um, it was just a lovely time, yeah. Meanwhile, I had started to study at the London School of Economics and Sociology and Anthropology and was, was out for a long time in the evening because I took the bus back because I was still working at the, at the Dutch section of the BBC until 1954. And I did my final exam for my degree only in 56. So you can imagine how long I studied and worked at the same time. And had to go. <laughs> we then, Rini and I, were thinking of sharing a flat, getting out of the hostel and sharing a flat, taking a room or sharing a flat. And then she had a friend living here in St. Peter's Square. And um, she knew that the other part of the house was empty and for renting. So we had to look at it, but Rini said it's too far with the tube for her to, because Rini had just finished a psychology degree and had a job uh, somewhere in the south of London, and she said it's very difficult to do that. So Hugo said, why don't we take it? And that's what we did. And I still live round the corner. <laughs> we got married in 1955, and then in 1957, our son Jocelyn was born, and uh, Hugo was a journalist. I started teaching. I took a postgraduate teaching degree and because I wanted to do some, some work in the south of Asia on my, for my anthropology, but my professor said I wouldn't do that because they're fighting in Indonesia for the moment and it's going to be very dangerous for you with a Dutch passport. So I didn't. And he said, why don't you do some teaching. So that's what I did. I taught at an, um, I took an, a mathematics degree, postgraduate, taught at first at a big comprehensive school and then at the Sacred Heart, um, Sacred Heart Catholic School, girls' school nearby here, and loved it. And then Hugo died in 79 and he, by that time, he was working as a journalist for Televisier and the Afro, as well as for Belgian papers and culture papers on art. And um, when he died, the papers and the Televisier asked me to take over. So I had to give up my teaching, which was very difficult because I loved it. I loved the girls and so but that's what I did, and I took over the journalist job and did that for years. How incredible. What an extraordinary life, Selma. It's amazing. I'm, I'm afraid we must we must wrap it there, but has it, has it been a burden living, living with that all your life? Ah, yes. Well, in a way it is, of course. It's every day I know about it. Every day I suffer still. Every morning, though, I wake up and I'm glad to be alive. But, I mean... You know, every little thing reminds me of what happened, especially my parents' death and my sister. That that comes into in front of my eyes all the time. 
I, I find it very difficult not to imagine, not to see how they suffered. Although, of course, I don't know for sure um, what happened to them, but I can imagine it after all the things they have shown. And that's very bad. It's a, it's a daily occurrence, actually. When I when in the evening, if I can't sleep, then I see them in front of me, you know, or I see them being thrown into the into a van or into the carriage. We're we're talking on Holocaust Memorial Day, and um, some of that's just been the most incredible two hours <laughs> listening to you and talking to you. And um, thank you so much for for sharing it all. I mean, what what an incredible life you've had! What an incredible story! Well, I just want to say that it is very important to have the commemorations, actually, because it commemorates what has happened. And it, and we hope, therefore, that, like I give every year, I go to Amsterdam to talk to lay the wreath. I'm asking to, to, to lay the wreath on the dam after the king and queen and to go to Ravensbrück with Dutch teachers to tell them the story, have a workshop, so that they can tell the children. And I go in August to Ravensbrück where to talk to the German students and do the same workshop with them. And it's I think it's very, very necessary. Well, it's been amazing to hear this. It really has. It's been, it's been um, profoundly moving, I have to say. So um, I, I'm enormously grateful to you for sharing it. And, well, I'm pleased and to share you. it. It's necessary, yeah. Also to remind people that there were very many people who lost their lives trying to save other people. Well, thank you very much indeed for listening to that extraordinary conversation with Selma van der Peer. We'll be back on Sunday for more family stories.